All right, so I mentioned before, it's, uh, it's been 30 years. Here, let's, let's bring that, put it up here, or unwrap it by hand again. Um, it's been 30 years since harvest began, and uh, we really want to spend some time in each of our services over the next month celebrating and thanking God uh, for 30 years of loving Jesus and 30 years of reaching people and 30 years of loving one another and 30 years of loving this community and 30 years of loving the world the way Jesus loves the world. And we couldn't, we couldn't think of a better way to do that than to feature something in our service each Sunday and then some things during the week to help prompt you in that direction. And so, uh, so I'm going to invite Andy to come. And uh, it's almost like God planned this because he had no idea we were doing this. Um, <clears throat> but Julie and I and, and Rachel talked about this a bit ago and just decided, I figure you'd rather hold it. Than, sure, that's fine. You know. So Andy Martin, everyone. So, uh, so I'm going to go sit down and you preach. Yeah. And, and so, no, no, no. no. Your notes? <laughs> yeah, I'd say you might not be able to decipher them. Okay. So if you don't know, Andy and Kay Martin uh, began Harvest uh, those 30 years ago. So in, in 30 years, you've been stuck with the two of us. Yeah. Right? And um, so here's the thing. Hey, before we think about mission work, because you guys, when, when God called you away from Harvest, it was to the mission field. Right. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. We'll get to that. But when you and Kay began Harvest, there was a sense in which you wanted Harvest to be different than a typical church. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. What, what was that? What was in your minds? Uh, wow, that, that's, that's a big question right there. Um, I think as much as anything, um, not just being a church full of cultural Christians. So <clears throat> we're in America, maybe, and it's different today, but we believe in God and we, we wanted to come be uh, in a place where the gospel was needed. Um, I'm from Oklahoma, we, so we, we had spent some time in Canada, a little bit of time in Canada, and um, wanted to be in a place where the gospel was really needed, where there, weren't a ch there wasn't a church on most corners. And, and so we wanted to come in and provide an environment of church where people were easily exposed to the gospel but in a very comfortable way in a sense of here's Jesus and here's here's how here's who Jesus is in the culture and here's who we are and it's full of love and it's about relationship uh, and that really is the foundation Brian I think of our mindset as we came in is that everything we did we wanted to build on relationship um, getting to know each other and letting Jesus become the middle of the relationship and the foundation of every relationship that there is and so, um, I mean, there's a lot of different things that we kind of tried to do. We said that we wanted to be a church. I think there was an, a, a car ad kind of campaign going on at the time that says, this isn't your grandfather's car or something like that. And, and we wanted to say to people, this isn't your mom's church or your dad's church. This is, can be your church, can be church for you. And uh, you're going to be loved and cared for and uh, welcomed exactly where you are in life. And uh, so... Yeah, that's, I don't know if that answers the question or not. It totally answers the question. That doesn't sound like us at all, does it? <laughs> no, that's, I think we are still that same church today. I mean, uh, we, we've had, a, we always have little invite cards, that kind of thing. I, we've, we've had little invite cards say, not your mama's church. Yeah, there you, you go. You know, I mean, there that's continued yeah, on. Yeah, uh, yeah. You walk through the doors today, we're going to love you exactly as you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter your walk of life. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it doesn't matter what your past is. 
we're going to love you as you yeah. are. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, all in the name of Jesus. And, yeah. Um, that's really good. So when, uh, I, I just, I have to say this because a couple of people have commented to me about it. They, people aren't used to seeing two pastors get along. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially from, from one to the other. You know, what do you think, what do you think helped you and I do that? Ah, well, there was we, about, we do get along, don't we? we I, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, I think it's silly not to. I, 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 we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and this, this is not my church. This isn't Brian's church. This is God's church. And uh, so first, that's first and foremost my, uh, I, I'm not, I hope you're not threatened by me. I'm not threatened not by you. I, this is, this church belongs to God. And so yeah. I said when I came, I would never pastor another church. The only reason I would ever leave was to go be, to do international missions, which is what my heart was when I first came up here. And so that's, that's why I went away. It wasn't because, and, and I think part of it too, Brian, there was a sense of, uh, there was a, a period of time. There was a year between the time that we came. Hopefully it was that maybe because Ken and I reached out to you and Marcy and said, we're so glad you guys are here. And we just, we want to overcome anything right off the bat that might be a barrier and so, and you guys were so receptive to that. And so there's just this element of a, still being a partnership and you guys welcomed us back anytime we wanted to come back, which was awesome. So it's just moving forward to say, here we are on the corner of Gillum and Crescent. Let's reach the city for Christ and um, just do whatever we can to get over anything that needs to happen to, to do that and let that be our focus. So right on. Yeah. yeah. Right on. Uh, so you and Kay, um, God called you 2007 or so. Yeah. To yeah. Um, to partner with the International Mission Board. Correct. Uh, you guys were based in Western Europe. Right. Um, and right. then after a number of years, uh, there was a, we don't have to get into the details of the furlough stuff, but but you transitioned, now you're, well, you're retired now. Kind of, kind of retired. Yeah, kind yeah. of retired, but with Samaritan's Purse. Yeah. And, and do uh, care, uh, missionary care uh, with them. Tell us what, what is everyday life? on the mission field like hmm. because I think we all have a perception of international missions and it's probably wrong I, I, yeah I, that's a good great question I think I think one of the things that we need to realize is that no matter where you I've been to 62 countries now and and around the world and and so I don't say that to say anything kind of bragging or anything it's just the reality of experiencing culture around the world and what you find is the needs of an individual person are the same around the world we all need to be loved and cared for and accepted where we are we all have a story everybody has a story right you guys have a story one of the greatest gifts you can ever give somebody is listening to their story and, and so um when you go in with missionaries they go in and they're wanting to take the gospel around the world and the day in the life is trying to figure out how to do that where they are and so, but they deal with children, they deal with marriage, they deal with loneliness, they deal with uh, rejection, they deal with pain, they deal with suffering, they deal with death, they deal with dying, they deal with lack of food, or they deal with need for money, they deal with um, just the same kind of needs that we all experience, just in a different context. Yeah. And so, that's why Jesus is the great hope that we have, is because he meets the needs in all those contexts. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... We just were able to go in and say, we want to support you and love you and point you to Jesus. That was our goal in every situation. It's amazing. I, I really do believe. I think it's, 
it is spot on of both the groups you were with, the IMB and, and, um, and with Samaritan's Purse, to provide missionary care, yeah. right? Soul yeah. care yeah. in a lot of ways yeah. for, uh, for those missionaries. I think it's something missing in pastoral life mm -hmm. in the U.S., mm -hmm. right? And some of the burnout rates we see, some of the no falling apart of we see in life is that we're not as good about it right. on this side as, as we tend to be internationally. What do you think? This is similar but different. What do you think is the greatest misconception Americans might have about <clears throat> missionary work and missionary endeavors? I think first and foremost, I, um, the first thing that comes to my mind, I should say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is that because you go and serve as an international missionary somewhere and live overseas, that makes you special or that makes you a better Christian or something like that. And that's just not true. <laughs> um, we all, everyone struggles. And again, we, we struggle with the same kind of things. And so um, maybe, the, maybe the greatest misconception uh, might be that because, I don't know if it's a misconception, it's almost like you're out of sight, therefore you're out of mind in, in some situations. And we don't think about yeah. what's not right in front of us. And so the needs that missionaries have, um, I spend a lot of time, my wife and I spend a lot of time on, we're, we're grateful for COVID because of Zoom. And so um, we spend a lot of time with international people living in Africa and living in, uh, we just got off the Zoom call before I came out here with a, a, a doctor from Togo for about an hour and a half. Um, just dealing with life and culture and, you know, um, living in a place that is not like her at all. And and her greatest struggle was with another doctor from America that they were having conflict with. Wow. Anybody relate to that? Yeah. So so the I guess the misconception is that you go serve as a as a as a missionary that makes you a super Christian and you're not going to have issues, and you're not going to have struggle and conflict with other people. And we, we found out that the greatest struggle that missionaries typically have is with other missionaries. Mm -hmm. Just like, I think, just like in the church, our greatest struggles aren't with this culture that we live in. It's with one another when expectations aren't met. Or um, uh, We're all selfish, so you're going to get me preaching here in a minute now. No, like, no, right. this, is, uh, this is really... Yeah, we're all selfish when our expectations aren't okay. met. We, we Somehow we take that personally, and anyway, it creates conflict, and that's the same thing that missionaries deal with. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think we, we see missionaries, just as you said, they're sort of like, they were superheroes yeah. Yeah. before they got called to the field, and... That makes them above the rest of us, yeah, right? Yeah. That, uh, of course, I think honestly, we do the same thing with pastors, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I one of the things I try to say all the time, I'm just like a normal fellow guy. struggler. I'm just a normal guy, right? Yeah. And um, ask my family; I got plenty of problems. Yeah. And actually, we just watch you. We know exactly. <laughs> this isn't this isn't hard to figure out. So, when you were with the International Mission Board, um, and you knew that there were churches just like us that were uh, partnering financially um, so that you could do what you were doing. Right. And now with Samaritan's Purse, a little bit different, but still similar but different. Right. There are right. people who give to to make sure that uh, missionaries around the world can do what they do. Right. Uh, what did that do for you, or how did that help in ways that might, you know, in a discouraged moment, might feel like, okay, somebody does have my back? I, 
the primary thing about like the International Mission Board, which is a part of the Southern Baptist group, and the way that we we do things denominationally, as well as a group like Samaritan's Purse, is that I I never spent a moment personally having to raise my finances. Yeah. So that was that came through churches, or it comes through people who are giving to the bigger organization to support the people that are working there. So there are 3,500-ish missionaries with the International Mission Board that live around the world that don't have to spend a year every four years going to individually raise support and, and focus on that and be worried about, we, don't get me wrong, we don't make much money, no. but we make plenty of money to survive and, and, to, and to be able to focus on the ministry that we go to live and do in the mix of people without having to worry about, can I pay my rent this month? Is, is there going to be enough food? So that's one of the things, primary things that giving in that cooperative kind of way does for both IMB and, and Samaritan's Purse. It's really good. It's really good. You, you said, and people are going to be curious about this, you're, you're retired sort of yeah. now. What does that mean and how can we uh, continue to pray for you? Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so our work, both with the International Mission Board and with uh, Samaritan's Purse, is to support um, the people who serve overseas spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and relationally. We want to help people live overseas and thrive. Um, with IMB, it, it's through church planting and really just being um, aggressive, not aggressive, but bold in sharing the gospel. Uh, with the Samaritan's Purse, it, it's, it, it platformed as um, disaster relief and humanitarian relief. And so we deal, I deal, we deal with the people that live on, in a culture not their own or in a situation that's highly traumatic in the case of Samaritan's Purse. And so in doing that, I have retired, we have retired, but we still do that contractually so that we still continue to keep up from a distance uh, through Zoom and, and virtually as well as occasionally Go to the field. We just got back from Greece where we sat down with 20 doctors and their families and had individual counseling sessions with every one of them as they were brought in for a refreshing conference and, and just to encourage and support and equip them. So we're going to continue to do that a little bit. Probably my wife's going to continue to do that more than I am, um, but we're going to continue to do that a little bit. So just we always ask the people to pray for wisdom for us to know how to be Jesus in front of people and point people who are struggling back to Jesus because that's where our foundation is and that's where our hope is. That's really good. Yeah. That's really good. So just as a couple of examples, you know, in the very, very early days of COVID, most people would remember the field hospital set up in the park in New York City. You were Central there. Park. I was, yeah. I retired March 20th of 2020 and um, I kid you not, I was in London, England getting ready to come home from a, tri a trip with Samaritan's Purse on March 14th when they shut down the airports. Now, we got back in because we're Americans. but So I was actually in, in, out overseas when COVID really hit. Came back. I retired March 20th and April 1st. I was in New York City at the hospital in, in downtown in, in Central Park um, as we ministered. and set, We set up a field hospital. If you've never seen pictures of that, that's the most awesome thing. Not because I work for them, but it's like it was incredible what we did in Central Park in New York City. You should go look at some of the pictures. But... Yeah, for I was there for five weeks, just uh, loving on the doctors and the nurses and the staff. I wasn't 
necessarily engaged in the, with the patients. I was engaged with the staff yes. who were blessing and engaged with the patients. Yeah, and we were praying for you in those in those weeks at that time. Thank I you. remember that. Thank I remember you. thinking like like this is real world stuff. And for me, it became one of those um, early exposures to like this is real. And I realized it all got politicized and, yeah, and all yeah, of that stuff. Yeah. But this is real. Like this is real life stuff. Yeah. You know, your doctors were hands and knees in the depths of death. Yeah. Yeah. And for sure. Um, and even now, Samaritan's Purse is strategizing what to do in Israel. That's right. Um, yeah. how, you know, how can we go in and be an assistance um, to the people in high need in the middle of that war? Yeah. Yeah, which is we've been in Ukraine for over, since the war started, we've been in Ukraine. Yeah, it's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, It's phenomenal. Well, can we pray for you? Uh, yes, All right. for sure. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for, uh, I think for Andy and Kay and their friendship and uh, he is a great theologian yeah. and a tower of a man, mm. and uh, but he's human just like all of us, and Kay is human just like all of us. I thank you for both of them, their love for people, their love for your word, and uh, their love for the gospel, to care for the people who share the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower their efforts. I pray for wisdom in what and how and more than anything, how to listen to broken hearts yeah. and how to be Jesus to those missionaries. I pray your blessing on retirement and whatever uh, that looks like, and I pray that it actually that it can actually be it can actually happen, frankly. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that we're not the only ones you call, and that uh, you have people around the world who want to love in Jesus' name. We pray for us that we can do that as a church as well. Thank you for partnerships just like this. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 I love you, brother. Thanks, brother. I love you, too. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. You're awesome. He really could have preached. We could have done that for another 40 minutes. and You, you might have tuned out after a bit, but not him, me. So uh, here's what I want to do today. Uh, by the way, the sermon hasn't started yet. Just being fair. Nobody's keeping track of time, right? Right, okay. All right. So if you have Bibles, I want you to open them with me to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23, we're going to read uh, shortly. Um, I'm going to take a step outside our uh, study of the book of Colossians and our Real ID series. And I want to talk today about why we can grieve with hope when life hurts. Grief is a natural and normal part of life. And as a church, there's been a lot of grief this year, if I'm honest. We've, um, there's been a little more death than is what is our typical norm. And I know many of you are in the midst of grief now. And of course, grief is not just when someone dies. Grief is when there's loss of any kind. And so I want to talk for a few moments about how we grieve as Christian people with hope and why we can do that. My first experience with death was when I was five or six. My grandfather, we called him Pawpaw, died. 
And we had recently lost a dog as well, maybe two. And so I'm a little five, six-year-old boy trying to figure out, what is this? Where are they? And I didn't understand heaven or the Bible or the gospel. I knew that I went to a hospital, and I knew that Papa was dead, and what did that mean? And I remember, I don't remember necessarily a ton from this age, but I remember lying in bed by myself at night and thinking, can you talk to someone who's a, wherever up there is? And I would talk to Papa. I think it's the first time I sort of began to discover this thing we today would call prayer, except we're talking up there uh, to an alive Jesus, uh, not just a, a dead grandfather. So in the process of grieving, when we lose someone we care about so deeply, grief weighs heavily on us. What are we supposed to do with that? Our, gr- our grief often pushes us into isolation mode. I'm going to just read this with you. This is Genesis chapter 23. It's a bit of the story of Abraham when his wife, Sarah, died. Sarah li- lived to be 127 years old. That's a lot of years. And she died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. This is the first time weeping shows up in the Bible. In fact, it may be the first time tears show up in the Bible. I'd have to check that, but weeping for sure. It's not the first time death showed up in the Bible. That happened a lot before. When Sarah died, she was 127 years old. Abraham was 137 years old. Isaac, at this point, would have been 37 years old. And it's been 62 years since Abraham and Sarah entered Canaan. The land, not their home. In our culture, grief hits, and people get uncomfortable with it. We get uncomfortable ourselves, but people around us get uncomfortable. And do you know what we mostly do when we feel grief? Like every other emotion that we perceive as negative, we stuff it. We distract. The distractions are boundless endless in our world we can do this we can turn on a screen right we can we can doom scroll or whatever that's called we can i can sit and watch a tv till umpteenth in the morning we do anything to distract scripture says i use this um use the wrong word i quoted this in mary's service yesterday The Psalms say that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. For Abraham, Sarah was his princess. I think precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his princess. 
So what does it mean to grieve with hope as Jesus followers? Let me show you the exact place over in the New Testament where this comes from. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's this particular phrase that is used. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 it says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Sleep being the, the metaphor for the fact that we will not stay dead as Christian people when we die. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that's our hope, frankly. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve with hope because Jesus died and rose again. And so if you hear anything I'm saying today, I hope you hear this one thing, that as Christian people, when someone we love passes, we grieve with hope and heaven in mind. We grieve with hope and Jesus in mind. And so I want to run through this story again and continue on what we've read in Genesis. And I want to, I want to think about some lessons when life hurts and why we can grieve with hope. It's really interesting. I, I look around the room and I know many of you have experienced loss because I've walked with you through it. And the same will be true when we do this again in you know, an hour or so. Let me give you, again, five lessons. Number one, Grieving with hope means we mourn and find comfort. We mourn and find comfort. Let me see if I can give you something that's sort of helpful because I find a lot of us think the word grief and the word mourning mean the same thing and they actually don't. It's worth understanding that grief and mourning are similar but very different from each other. Grief is the experience we have when we've lost something or lost someone. Grief happens whether we choose it or not, and grief shows up in times and ways that we cannot control. If you've grieved the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, certainly even the loss of a parent or a friend, you know that out of nowhere, grief can arrive. Sometimes at moments that totally make sense. A, a song comes on the radio. Do they have, we have radios still? Seems like such an old uh, technology, right? Exactly. I still listen to mine. Sometimes it's... Yeah. 
But sometimes grief shows up in ways that makes no sense at all. You're just going through your everyday moment, everyday life, and with no trigger and no warning, you're flooded like the waves that come in off the ocean that sort of come and go. You're flooded with an emotion that you're not sure where it came from. And, and as, you, as you dwell in it, you realize this again is grief. Mourning, on the other hand, is a choice. Grieving is not something you really... Uh, you, you can choose to grieve in the sense of not suppressing it, but mourning is the intentional expression of deep sorrow after experiencing loss or grief. Mourning is something we intentionally embrace to feel the emotions of our loss. Mourning is very, very healthy. Listen to the words again. Sarah lived to be 127 years old, and she died at Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron. And that's actually significant, we'll come to that. In the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Notice that weeping was a part of the mourning. That there was a very real sense in which he realized that the loss of Sarah, his princess, was significant. You remember the story of Lazarus who died and Jesus was called. And the two sisters, of course, sort of separately found Jesus and they both basically said something similar. The, the gist of it was, if, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Almost like they were blaming Jesus. And, and by the way, that, that is part of grief itself. And you should somewhat expect for you and Jesus to have conversations like that. Jesus didn't just feel compassion for Mary and Martha. He grieved with them. In fact, he mourned with them. You remember, he said, show me where he is. And they went to the tomb, and there were all people gathered around, and they were all weeping. And this was actually a period of mourning that was common, where people gathered together to mourn together with the family. And they were, they were weeping. And when he saw the weeping and he saw the tomb and he saw what was happening, this was his friend. Jesus grieved and Jesus mourned. And you would remember, Jesus wept. Grief and mourning are godly. And we serve a God who weeps. Number two, Grieving with hope means we work on acceptance and we find peace. I was really uncomfortable with my language here. When I first was trying to fashion out how I was going to say this, I was using the phrase let go. And I came to realize that acceptance is really more what I'm talking about than letting go. And and then I came to realize that, that acceptance is not something we just do like a switch. That if anything, grief and mourning open a process of working towards acceptance 
that, that is a lifelong process in many senses. And here's what's difficult emotionally about this. People will say to you after a certain period of time, for some a very short period of time, and for others after a while, they will say to you, don't you think it's time you move on? Which couldn't be more cold and indifferent. Now, this says that Abraham rose from beside his dead wife. This is verse 3. And spoke to the Hittites. And I don't really get a sense necessarily that this happened after like months and months and months. I don't mean that. Uh, he, had, he had to get, she needed to be buried. So this was fairly quick. But there was a moment where he had to take the next step. He didn't have to move on. He did have to move forward or go forward. Does that make sense? Acceptance is challenging. You're probably familiar with a famed model of grief that says there are five stages, right? Denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. And I don't with any of really any part of me believe that those things happen in some sort of sequence that you can time out and you can say, oh, now look, you, <clears throat> you got 10 days to be in this part. And then for a month, you go over here, and then you, you can't control this. And it probably looks more like a star where you're bouncing around from feeling to feeling. But, but these experiences are a part of grief. Abraham moved forward, grieving, mourning, to bury his princess. And he moved forward in grieving after this chapter, chapter to help Isaac find a wife or, or maybe even more specifically find one for him, which, you know, culturally we don't understand as much. But uh, the great pastor uh, Warren Wearsby once said that another great pastor, uh, Vance Hevner, who, who had a wife named Sarah, by the way, uh, shortly after her untimely death, Wearsby said, I was with Dr. Hevner at the Moody Bible Institute, I shared my condolences with him, and I said to him, something we say all the time, I'm sorry to hear about uh, the loss of your wife. And he said, the good doctor said to him, he smiled and said, son, when you know where someone is, you haven't lost them. Grieving with hope means we work on acceptance, which is a process. But in the Lord, we find peace. Number three. Grieving with hope means we honor the dead, the person who died. I, I, in a lot of ways, I wish I'd softened that a bit. We honor the person who died and we find respect. Honor and respect really are... Um, sort of keys into the process of grieving and mourning that, that get lost. And, and when we don't work on honor and respect in the process of burying or um, you know, the services that we hold and celebrations of life and uh, burials or, or you know, in, in a lot of cases these days, uh, we have someone cremated. And if, if there's not honor and respect 
in the equation. We get stuck in our grief because we're in the wrong things. Frankly, I, it's, it's, as cold as this sort of sounds, when someone dies, there's a lot of business to be done. And that business often distracts us from the emotion, so we sort of like it. There's an emotional side of grief and mourning where we're letting go through emotional release, but there's also an honor side of grief where we're doing the right things in the right ways. And sometimes we're burying someone who wasn't very honorable. Now, that's not true in in Sarah's case. In fact, I would argue that Sarah was more honorable along the way than Abram was or Abraham was when you read their whole story together in the times where he's like, honey, could you lie and not say you're my wife so they don't kill me to have you? I mean, Abraham's a man of great faith, but great flaws too. And I would just say honor is not about the person in many ways, we do work to honor the person who died. But honor is not about whether they deserve honor. It's about whether you are honorable in your choices. In other words, if I've got someone that, that is, we're working through the process of, of figuring out burial and those kinds of things. And if I'm not choosing to be honorable, what I will do is short circuit a trauma process inside of me that ends up damaging me in terms of grief and frankly, often sticking me somewhere I don't want to be. So the story goes on, Genesis 23, and if I start with verse 5, it says, the Hittites, these were the people of the land, replied to Abraham, sir, you know what, I, I got too far ahead, I'm going to back up. Uh, verse 3, Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and he spoke to the Hittites, and he said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site where I can bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Which says something about his reputation. Again, she was his princess. They thought of him as a prince. They were honoring him. And they said, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse his tomb for burying your dead. Now, now this is a very generous offer, but, but I want to be clear about what they're doing because there's a business transaction about to be made. And this feels odd, much like when we are working on grieving and we have to work with funeral homes and, and things of that nature, that uh, social security and all the paperwork and all of that feels odd, but he's doing what we have to do. And remember, he's in a land not his own. He has no home and it's the Hittites land. And they say, take any of our tombs. We respect you. But what they're offering is bury your dead in our tomb. It's still our tomb. It's not yours, it's ours. We'll, we're not loaning it to you. We'll let you use it for the rest of your life. But it's ours, not yours. Abraham, Abraham rose and bowed before the people of the land, the Hittites. Again, honor bowed. And he said to them, if you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, 
which belongs to him and is at the end of his field, and ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. And Ephron, the Hittite, was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city, No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Now, again, this sounds like he's like deeding it to him, but he's not. In some ways, they are following ancient custom on negotiating, but he's at least out of the gate saying, you can use it for free. I give it to you. He says, bury your dead. I'll pick the story up in a minute, but I just want to note for us that honor and respect are key, and we honor the dead greatly when we do the process with honor whether they're honorable or not. Like, just sort of interesting, this cave is the world's most ancient Jewish holy site today. And this cave is the second most sacred site in Jewish thought after the Temple Mount. There's currently a mosque. There's a long history involved through the Crusades. It went back. It was built as a church, converted to a mosque, various things. Um, this is the second cave to show up in the Bible, but easily also the second most significant, spiritually significant cave in Jewish and Christian thought. Would you have a guess in Christian thought which is the most significant cave? That's the one we with hope because of number four grieving with hope means we think about our legacy and their legacy and we find people not possessions people not possessions verse 12 again abraham bowed down before the lord of the land the people of the land and he said to ephron in the hearing and they're hearing all the people listen to me if you will I will pay the price of the field acceptant from me so I can bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. That is about 10 pounds of silver. I, I, don't, I don't care whether you're talking about back then or today. I'm not sitting on like 10 pounds of silver at my house. Are you? Right? This, this was significant. It's worth about 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. He is still saying, just spare your, it's, it's worth a lot. You don't have to buy it from me. Abraham, though, agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. He called his bluff in a lot of senses and said, here you go, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight uh, current among the merchants. So he's, he's doing a business transaction which seems odd, but is significant. This is the only piece of property Abraham ever bought in what becomes the land of the Jews or the Holy Land. So let me just finish this part of the story. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre 
both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, they were deeded, or it was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. And afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Abraham's willing to honor her by spending whatever it takes to create a home away from home. Notice what Abram didn't do. I mean, it, it wouldn't have been possible because he'd come so far from home, but he didn't try to take her back home to bury her. But he made a home in this land that God had promised. Remember, this is a faith act. We'll get to that in a second. That God had said, I will make you a people's. Right? That, that from you will come as many as the sands on the... From you will come kings and princes. And here, Abraham is just saying, I need a cave to bury my wife. And he honors her and he buys this cave and it becomes spiritually significant. By the way, not only is Sarah buried in this cave, when Abraham dies, he is buried in this cave. And when Isaac dies... And Rebecca dies. They're buried in this cave. And when Leah died, you remember Jacob and Leah and Rachel and that whole deal. When Leah dies, Jacob buries Leah in this cave and Rachel dies. It's interesting. I had to look it up to remember how this played out. When Rachel, because there was that whole deal, right, where he had to marry both wives and, the, 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 you know, okay, I'm going to pull a switch on you. And, and so he, he marries Leah and he's got to work for seven years. And, and then he marries Rachel. And, but Rachel was his favorite. And his kids through Rachel were his favorite, Joseph and Benjamin. And she, Rachel dies giving birth or after giving birth to Benjamin. And he has to bury her there. So not in this cave. That place happens to be a place you've also heard of. It's called Bethlehem. So it's here where Leah is buried. And Jacob dies in Egypt. Remember Joseph and the story and the brothers? They all go to Egypt. and There was famine in the land. And they all eventually end up in Egypt after all the unfair stuff. And there's Joseph as like sort of second in command of all of Egypt. And Jacob dies there and they... They, they do what they do for princes there. And his family carries him back to the tomb, to the family tomb, to Machpelah. And Joseph buries him in this cave. This is why it's so spiritually significant in Jewish thought and why it is the second most sacred cave really in the history of the world. I quoted Warren Wiersbe before. I, I love this. He said, Genesis ends with a fool tomb. The Gospels end with an empty one. And that's why we grieve with hope. So number five, grieving with hope means we embrace faith and we find home. 
We embrace faith and we find home. We grieve with heaven ahead and hope for tomorrow, with heaven ahead and Jesus in us now. Abraham found the promised land, and this becomes his promised land, if you will, where, where he buys this anchor of a little piece of land, a field and a cave, and all of his family is buried here. And generations are buried here. And in faith, Abraham did all of this, believing that God would complete his promises. And when we bury those who we love, we in faith believe God will finish his promises too. Promises that are outlined for us just as an example in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember Abraham who when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. And by faith he made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. And Abraham lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. We're not talking about the city of Jerusalem. We're talking about something more significant in the heavens. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was able to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. And all these people were still living by faith when they died, and they did not receive the things they were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. The people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of, they, of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have oppor- had opportunity to return, to go home. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You ever feel like out of place here in sort of your Christian life? That this world feels less and less like a comfortable home? I don't mean your house. I mean the craziness of this world. That's because we weren't made. Actually, theologically, we were made for this world, but we messed it all up. You know the story, right? Genesis 1, 2, 3. The end of Revelation, right? This world will pass away, and a new, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and the new heaven will be brought to the earth. We think of heaven as like clouds and harps and cherubs, and, but it'll be here. Forever. And the presence of our loved ones who had faith in Jesus in a home that we longed for by faith and will have it because Jesus, you know the verse, right? The famed revelation verse. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is what's come our loved ones people ask this so then what is heaven like now no new earth yet so what and the sequence of all of this i don't pretend to like be able to predict but there is a current heaven and i'm confident that they're in that home with jesus that longed for place 
And if we're still alive when he returns, which I'm not saying could be any moment, but I am saying could be any moment. I would have said that before war broke out again in Israel, but wars broke out in this part of the world. By the way, where there's a cave, this, this land, this cave is in the West Bank. There are Jews, a few of them, who live in the city where this is. And it is uh, really one of the only places in the West Bank where there are some. And this happened after the 1972, 73, when the war happened then in Israel. Again, significant holy site to people who are Jewish. We have a cave as well. Significant holy site for those of us that are Christians. And we grieve with hope and heaven in mind because that cave is empty. And where's Jesus today? He's in heaven. And he's coming back. It's where he ascended to, right? And he's coming back and we'll be with him forever. And that's our home. And that's why we grieve with heaven and hope in mind. That's why. We're going to end our service as we often do, two prayers. And um, if you're grieving in this season, I'd like to pray for you and with you. But as I always do, I'd like to lead you in prayer. But before we get there in a prayer of application, I just want to offer you a prayer of salvation. If any of you are here listening online today, watching online today, and you've never received Jesus, who died for our sins, was buried in a borrowed cave. Does this language sound familiar? Borrowed cave? A rich man's cave, by the way. There's really no accidents in the Bible. So much was intentional. God knew what he was doing. Buried in a borrowed cave. Third day, Jesus is raised to life, alive today. Resurrected, seen by hundreds. Ascends into heaven, can live in us today, wants to live in us. It's the relationship that Andy was talking about when we began. It's that significant relationship with Jesus that changes all our relationships. And if you need Jesus today, would you receive him now? Pray with me just like this. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you. And I ask you to forgive my sins. And I thank you that you died for them. I put my faith in you. I believe you're alive today. And I ask you to take over my life. And be my God. And live in me. And change me. And fill me with hope. Everyday hope. Grieving hope. And eternal hope. Fill me, Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. If that's you and you prayed to receive Jesus, maybe, uh, you know, for the very first time, 
I'd love to celebrate that, and I'd love to, to uh, come alongside you and welcome you to the family. And next week, we'd love to baptize you. And I know it all might sound scary to you, but it starts with a conversation. I'd love to just know. And you, you can let me know on a communication card. You can let me know, uh, find me. You can tell someone in the room. You can even email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. I know a number of you, most of you really, have prayed a prayer similar to that in your life. But grief is still real, isn't it? Jesus never asks us not to grieve because he's died for our sins and rose again. He didn't say don't grieve. He didn't, he didn't poo-poo on our grief. Sorry, that may be in the best language. But he, he, didn't, he didn't frown upon it. He grieved too. But with hope. Think about Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. That's the same Lazarus story. I am the resurrection and the life. He could say that because he knew what was coming and it would cost him death. But he is the resurrection and the life. So if you need the comfort of grieving with hope, would you pray this prayer of application with me? In fact, why don't we stand and pray it together? Dear Jesus, thank you for hope. Real hope. And thank you that you defeated death, that you're alive. So many of us are grieving right now. We pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray particularly for our harvest families who recently lost loved ones. We thank you for a home in heaven that is secure. We thank you that we will be changed. We grieve with your hope that you paid for. Thank you that you live in us. And one day we'll live with you. In Jesus' name.